You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, go to sojournmontrose.com. All right, so here's the issue, uh, or my issue anyway, with, with, with Romans, is that any time that I read a verse in Romans, what I want to do is just say, all right, no comment, let's just start in Romans chapter 1 and read the whole thing, and, that, and we'll be done, right? Because Romans, has, the way that Paul sets up his argument is, is sequential, it's very rational, it's very logical, and that for me is like hitting on all cylinders. That is awesome for me, right? But we're not going to do that this morning because, one, that would be a lot of reading, and two, it probably wouldn't be quite as helpful as maybe you would want it to be. But so here's what we're going to do. We're going to understand that there's a, a reality at play in Romans um, that is specific in terms of us understanding, again, that the kingdom of God, right, this people, this people that have been drawn together in the suffering of Jesus, through the suffering of Jesus, right, is first established by a promise, a promise that God makes. And so uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 13 says this, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, here's what, here's what we need to know about Romans, right? So uh, the church at Rome is kind of this, this baby church, like very, very similar to us. And, and in that church, there are people from different walks of life, right? And really two distinct, very significant different groups of people, right? You have, you have the, the Jews on one side, right? So the people of Israel, the nation of Israel on, on one side. And then you have the Gentiles on the other, basically anybody not of Israeli descent or of Jewish descent, Jewish heritage, right? Now, historically, historically in this group of people, you have different worldviews, right? Like depending on, and we see this even now, depending on where you were born or where you were raised, like you have different ways of looking at and viewing the world. But here's the thing. What's taking place at the church in Rome is that people are bringing in their worldview, and rather than seeing their worldview changed by Jesus, they're instead sort of adding it to Jesus. And so they're saying, yes, it's the gospel, but it is also these cultural practices that we've shared for centuries, right? And so here's, here's these two people, and here's their, their respective worldviews. So the Jew, typically you have, right, a, historic, a, a, a historical account of a people who often were law keepers, right? Who were law keepers. So they had seen, they had been revealed uh, the law of Moses, right? The Ten Commandments that, that we all are fairly familiar with, I think, right? And they essentially viewed the world in such a way that, that they were designed really to, to keep that law, right? And historically, Gentiles had been seen as completely outside of that relationship, that they were the law breakers, that because of the fact that they did not observe the law of Moses, that they did not follow the commands of this God, the God of Israel, that they were therefore excluded from the people of God, right? That because they were not sort of up to par, that because they did not live up to that certain standard, that they were by nature, right, separated from one another. So you have two groups of people. You have the Jews, the law keepers, and you have the Gentiles, the law breakers. And in the letter to the church in Rome, what Paul is doing is saying, you know what, both of you are wrong in this instance, and both of you have been made one in Christ Jesus. So here's what took place, right? Jews brought their law-keeping into the church. So the gospel 
was given essentially an addendum that said, yes, the gospel, grace, it's good, it's free, it's been given to us by Jesus, but you also must observe circumcision. You also must do these things. You also must sort of align with the, the tradition of Jewish cultural, cultural thought. Right? And then you have the Gentiles who brought their law breaking into the church saying, oh man, thank God the law no longer has a bearing upon us. It is about grace and grace alone. So the more that we sin, the more grace there is. And the reality is that both of those lines of thinking abuse the gospel either by disbelieving its power or by disbelieving its implications, right? That's the reality. And so what Paul is going to do is he's going to frame for us, right, the role of grace, the role of the law, the role of faith in the, salv- the salvation work of Jesus. That's what he's doing here in Romans chapter 4. And what he does is he links it back to this promise, this promise that God makes to Abraham. And I just want to read it for us very quickly. It's Genesis chapter 12. And Genesis is the easiest book to find because it's the first one. Um, But Genesis chapter 12, and just the first three verses, all right? This is what it says. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of earth shall be blessed. Now, here's the thing. We don't have time to read the first 12 chapters of Genesis. But what we can quickly notice is that before this instance in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is not even mentioned other than genealogy, right? Which is the the part that you don't read because it's like this person begat this person begat this person begat this person, right? Because none of those names we can pronounce. Uh, So, he has not been mentioned whatsoever, right? No, no, no mention of Abraham. And in fact, what we've seen in the first 12 chapters of Genesis is one, that God created all things good. We messed it up. And that then God decided to show us grace by not just sort of killing us off right there in that moment, but then that things got so bad that with the man Noah, he said, you know what, we're just going to start over with you. And then, of course, even Noah, we see his failure, his inability to be faithful to this God who had been nothing but gracious and faithful to him, right? And then out of the blue, Genesis chapter 12, God looks at a man named Abraham and he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make you a people who are blessed. And, And through you, I am going to bless all peoples, all nations, all tongues, all tribes. I mean, what? What prompted that, right? I mean, I think the question that we would immediately begin to ask ourselves because we are always looking for uh, justification, right, is that we would say, all right, well, what did Abraham do to deserve that? How did, how did Abraham behave or what did Abraham do to, to, that led to God saying, I'm going to make you a great people. I'm going to make you a great nation. Through your offspring, I'm going to bless all the nations in the world. Well, the fact of the matter is that Abraham, up to this point, literally has done nothing of note. 
Nothing worthy of even a little jot. Like there's, not a, there's no sidebar, there's no footnote, there's no addendum. There's nothing in here about what Abraham has done. This is the first instance that we see of Abraham. And it is God coming to him and speaking to him this promise. And what Paul ultimately is showing us here is that this kingdom that Jesus came preaching, this kingdom of God that was at hand of which Jesus was the king, is established by this promise to Abraham, for which Abraham has done nothing. So it's quite clear that God's grace, that God's kindness actually precedes the law, right? I think oftentimes when we look at the Old Testament, the first thing we think is that's the law, that's the irrelevant part because Jesus came to make things better after that. And yet the reality is that um, this false dichotomy that we've created between Old and New Testament is exactly that. It's false. We think that, oh, well, God was this way in the Old Testament. Now he's this way in the, New Test- in the New Testament. So I like this God over here better than I like this God over here. When the reality is, when the reality is that God has been utterly consistent in that he promised from the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 that he was going to have a people both to whom and through whom he reveals himself. But he's also continued to show us throughout the Old Testament that he was going to have that in spite of the fact that this people were faithless, in spite of this fact that the people would abandon him, in spite of this fact that the people would not live up to the standards that were required to be given the favor of God. What you'll, what you'll begin to notice too is that um, the law of Moses comes to us in Exodus, which is the next book, right? Right? So again, God, for no, no reason that I can discern anyway, other than his kindness, looks at a man named Abraham, just some Middle Eastern guy, <laughs> hanging out in the desert somewhere, like feeding his sheep, and he looks at him and he says, through you, I'm going to bless all the nations on the earth. So the kingdom of God is first established by God's promise. So grace, right, the grace of God, is absolutely, fully, and wholly revealed, consummated, fulfilled in the coming of Christ, in his work on our behalf. But make no mistake, God was gracious even prior to Jesus' incarnation. He was gracious even from the very beginning. So then this is what, what Romans says. Now that we have that, Let's read verse 13 again, and then we'll jump to verse 14. It says this, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, what? Did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null, and the promise is void. So here's, I think we can get a hint now as to who Paul is addressing in Romans chapter 4, right? He's talking to the Jews in this situation. Because again, the, the Jews believe that, all right, if we just act good enough, if we just follow the law rigidly enough, if in our best white-knuckled, gritted-teeth efforts, we can force ourselves to conform to this law, to, to this set of things, then, then we will be heirs of the promise then God will will draw us into himself just like he promised to do 
uh, to our father, Abraham. And so Paul responds by saying that if it came through the law, that if there was a possibility of us obtaining through the law a righteousness that was satisfactory to God, like that was good enough for God, that if, if that was possible, then faith is, is null and the promise is void because it, it, it becomes not about what God had promised and it becomes all about what Abraham had done. And yet in the story of Abraham, we recognize that he's done nothing. And then he says this in verse 15, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So who is Paul addressing here? Right, he's, so as soon as, as soon as the Gentiles look at the Jews and start to say, see, we told you you had it wrong, he turns around and he says, oh, but make no mistake, brothers and sisters. There is great purpose in the law, that the law serves the people of God well, that God has actually been gracious in delivering to us the law. Why? Because it reveals to us our transgression. So here's the thing, right? We, we've been saying, or what we're trying to state, or what we're trying to get through through this sermon is that the, that the kingdom of God, right? That our belonging in the kingdom of God is first established by a promise that has been given to us. What we're trying to say is that ultimately salvation belongs to God, that the establishment of the kingdom of God is something that he will accomplish, not something that we will bring about by our works. That our belonging in the kingdom, that our ability to stand before a righteous and holy God does not come from our ability to cleanse ourselves enough, but rather that we've been given the cleansing that we need in and through the person and work of Jesus. And I love the argument <laughs> I love the argument that Paul makes here. Because essentially what Paul is saying is this. That if the kingdom of God, right, if the people of God were established by the law, then that kingdom would be comprised of one person. And it would be Jesus. Because the law for everyone but Jesus brings the wrath of God. Because it reveals our, transgre our, our transgression, our inability to keep the law. It is impossible, this is what Paul is saying, it's impossible to become an heir of the promise of God through the law. Now many of us, I think, like, we, we agree with that. Like on a, on a head level, right? But in terms of our hearts, if you're anything like me, the, the strangest thing happens that I believe that that's true and yet at the same time much of my life much of my living is done in such a way that I am trying to build up my own resume my own righteousness that I'm looking to God for approval for the things that I have done rather than looking to God for the approval that he has given me for what Jesus already did and one of the reasons that I can know that that's not just true of me in this room and that it's probably true of many more of us is that probably one of the chief complaints about the church is what? It's that we're hypocritical. It's that we say that grace is free, but then in order to take part of that grace, you need to at least be this clean. You need to at least not engage in these things before you come to Jesus. 
You need to at least wash that part. You need to at least take care of this little issue before you come to God. Right? We, we come into a community of faith that has been drawn together from all different types of worldview, from all types of different places, with all kinds of unique manifestations of our brokenness, and we expect everyone to act and behave in the same way that we act and behave. That's us, brothers and sisters, going back to the law. That's us wanting to be our own lords, to be our own saviors, and we can't do it. We tried that in the garden. It broke everything. We've tried it over and over and over again since then, and we can only recognize that even after thousands of years, no matter how long you think the earth has been in rotation with people on it, that there has been a pattern of destruction and death that we can't escape or avoid. And so this is what is beautiful and glorious about the good news that we have here in Romans chapter 4 is that in verse 16 it says that instead of depending on the law, instead of this kingdom being established by the law, it is instead established by the promise of God and it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And this is that beautiful moment where Paul looks at both of them. He says, you're stupid. This is what it's all about. He says, you don't get it. It's yes, for the adherent of the law, but it's also for those who share the faith of Abraham because we've all been brought together underneath what? This promise that God would bless all peoples through the promise to Abraham his lineage, his offspring. And then it says this in verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. Here's the thing, the law, right, and, and even the season of Lent kind of leave us in a place of hopelessness, like helplessness, right? The whole purpose of the law is not so that we can actually achieve it, it's to show us that we can't, right? That's what Paul is getting to here. And so there's a sense in which when we look at that, it's like a mirror that just points out every insecurity, every imperfection, every, everything wrong. We understand in that moment that we are transgressors, that we are justly met with God's wrath in our own power. Now here's the thing, though. Most of us, I think, right, would, would think that, okay, um, if God is holy and perfect and just and he's given us a law, he's given us a contract essentially to keep that we can't meet, then that means that God is now no longer obligated to that promise, right? We didn't hold up our end of the bargain. He promised to make us a great nation. He promised to be our God and that we would be his people. And yet we've shown time and time again that we can't. So does that mean God is no longer obligated? One would think that. One would think that probably because much of our relationships are, are bound more by contract than by promise, right? 
in that many of our relationships are sort of sustained by, well, this person provides for me this thing, so as long as they keep doing that, then I'll provide this thing and we'll just make it work. But the moment that, that one of those starts to slip, that's a moment that I, that I start to think about escape. That's a moment that I, I begin to think, oh, okay, well, maybe I can find this need met like somewhere else, right? Or I'm no longer obligated to provide this because they're not really holding their end of the bargain. That's a contractual relationship, and yet the relationship that God established with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 was not contractual. It was based on a promise. And a promise is entirely different in that it is made without condition. Right? When you, we read Genesis 12, 1 through 3, right? What did it say about Abraham? Nothing. It said nothing about Abraham. It said it was God saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, 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 and this. That's it. It's not a conditional statement. It's not a conditional requirement. It's not, I'm going to do these things if. It's, I'm going to do these things. Period. End of story. So in spite of the law bringing wrath upon us, revealing our transgression, the beauty and the confidence that we are about to receive from Romans chapter 4 is that God still intends to keep his promise. And that he's done so ultimately by revealing to us, giving us this man Jesus. So I'm going to read verses uh, 18 through 22. And this is kind of, a again, a case study right, of the life of Abraham and Sarah, and it says this. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, here's, here's the thing, right? So we basically just set up like the reality that, that Abraham has not done anything worthy of God's promise being levied upon him, right? And yet here, for a moment, like Paul essentially breaks out of that pattern and says, these are, these are the good things that, that Abraham has done. So it might be a little confusing, right? It's like, wait a minute, you just said it wasn't about Abraham, it was about God's promises and him being faithful to that in spite of the fact that we are unfaithful. So why now do we have this example of Abraham? I think often... Um, we tend to make the hero of the story, uh, or at least a guess at who the hero is, wrongly. Right? Abraham did good things. It tells us here that he grew strong in his faith, that he gave glory to God, that he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And yet at the same time, what I would want us not to do is to separate that from the real history of Abraham's life. So here's the thing. God made that promise to Abraham. And there were years, there were years before Abraham had his first child that would be the initiation, the start of this great nation. And here's the thing, the first, 
The first child that Abraham had was not even by his wife. It was by his servant because he didn't trust God. And then we see that even when they move into this land that God had promised to give them, that he's not, he's, he's less concerned about the fact that God promised him something and he's more concerned about the fact that Pharaoh thought his wife was hot. And so he, and so he said, hey, just let's, let's tell Pharaoh that you're my sister. All right, so here, here's the thing. We have, this, we have this great recollection of Abraham's life that says he was faithful, that he grew strong in his faith. And at the same time, if we look at the details of Abraham's life, we see that really, really, he was not by any means perfect. That really he was still very much unfaithful. And yet, what we can conclude then from this text is that God makes unfaithful people faithful. Is that God takes an unfaithful man and he leads them in such a way that at the conclusion of their life, people look back, people who are writing Christian scripture look back at the life of Abraham and they say he was faithful. So what was credited to Abraham as righteousness? Was it the fact that he grew strong in his faith? No, it's that he was given faith. And this faith that he was given was then counted to him as righteousness. Abraham's actions were far from faithful, if you recall his story. And yet, yet, through the work of God, through the promise of God, he is found faithful. And here's what I love. This is just a side note. What I love about this, in verse 20 it says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. So here's the thing. There's a vast amount of time, right, between the moment that God makes his promise to Abraham and the moment that the child of promise, not Ishmael, but Isaac is born. And in that time, you'll notice the difference, the change in Abraham. Because at the beginning, he's like, I don't know if this is going to happen. I need to manufacture something. I need to sleep with this servant girl and see if that will sort of kick this promise thing off. Or man, God said he's going to give me a land, but I, I don't really believe that. So let's just, let's kind of test the waters. Let's dip our toe in. Let's, let's maneuver in, in this way. And yet, after Isaac is born and has come of age and He is that child of the promise, born of Sarah's barren womb, born of his broken 100-year-old body. God then asks him, take Isaac, go up the mountain, and offer him as a sacrifice to me. And it gets to the point where Abraham is at the top of the mountain. His knife is raised. He is about to slaughter his own son, the son of the promise. And God says, wait. And so we see, right, the progression of Abraham's faith over the years that as God proved himself faithful time and time again to God, that, I mean, to to Abraham, as God proved that faithfulness time and time again, that Abraham's faithfulness, that Abraham's faith in the promises of God also grew. So much so that even that moment that he had been waiting for for decades had arrived. He was willing to give it all up because he knew that God had still promised that there would be a nation. And even if God took Isaac, that would still become a reality in some way, in some shape, and in some form. And so here's 
where this lands for us. Verse 23 says this, But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake, Abraham, alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ Jesus. Jesus promised to make unfaithful people faithful. Jesus promised to make a great nation. Jesus promised to bless all nations through that nation. And in Christ Jesus, he has established this kingdom once and for all through the body and blood of Christ in order to make those things a reality. The promise of a people who know God is answered in that in Jesus we have the image of the invisible God. The promise of a great and numerous people is revealed in Jesus in that we have a history of thousands of years in the church where faithful men and women proclaimed the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and saw people come to know him, allowed entrance into this kingdom by the sheer grace and good work of Christ Jesus. The promise of blessing, that God has blessed us with his presence in Christ Jesus, in bringing Godness into flesh to meet with us, to be our Emmanuel, God with us. So, my hope this morning, my hope this morning, especially in this season of Lent, is that although we take a moment and we step back during Lent and we look at all of our failure and all of our sin and we soberly say, God, Use that law to show me where I've, where I've faltered. We can also, with great confidence, look at the fact that God is not only a promise-giving God, but that he is a promise-keeping God, and that in Christ he has shown his desire to keep that promise. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 reads like this. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So here's the thing. If you're a believer in the room this morning, the law serves a purpose, but it is not to justify you. Jesus already did that. He's given you the Spirit as a seal of its guarantee. If the, promise, if, if the promise is based on faith and rests in grace, then that means it's guaranteed. If you go back to the law, then it's no longer a guarantee because it, because it becomes about your ability to perform. And if you're, if you're not a Christian in the room this morning, this is the truth, ultimately, that distinguishes followers of Jesus from every other, not only religion, but worldview. Because even if you're a secular humanist like Richard Dawkins, Richard Dawkins still believes that you have to attain a certain amount of intelligence and physical ability in order to be worth living there's still a standard that you have to meet in order to justify your existence. 
and yet in Christ and in following Jesus, what we're saying is that Jesus met that standard for us. And even though we're hopeless and helpless, he is hopeful and helpful. And he has leveraged that on our behalf freely by his grace. And so, brothers and sisters, the salvation that we claim is secure, not because of our, our ability, but rather simply because God promised it. And so we can wade into these waters of Lent. We can wade into our sin. We can wade into the imperfection that we have knowing that God has already promised that we will experience the fullness of perfection in his kingdom, the kingdom that he's established by a promise. Let's pray.